As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. proudly present songs perverse and songs of lament a couple hymns of confession and the latest episode of columbia house party jake what's up man oh you know just uh sitting here in my living room slash kitchen ready for another exciting uh exciting podcast why do you always say like every time i kick to you on intro it's so under enthusiastic like you hate this podcast or something no, it's just been like we're like several episodes deep and there's only so many like, I'm good. How are you? I can, you know, try to change it up a little bit. This I don't is know. the second one we're recording. Come on, man. <laughs> Unbelievable. Unbelievable. I'm going to oh, start whatever. leaving Easter eggs in like each episode that we record at the same time and see if people can figure it out after. Um, oh, I like that. For example, the, the rainy day story. Yeah, yeah, there are, uh, there's Insane Clown Posse in all of them. That would be hard to figure out. It's 51 straight episodes <laughs> of Insane Clown Posse talk. Uh, what do you have for us today, Jake? Uh, so today we're talking about uh, a band that's very important to me. I don't think I would ever cons- I ever consider this band my absolute favorite band in the world, but they were definitely uh, way up there, especially when I was in university. I think I had literal months at a time when I would listen to nothing but this band, uh, they were, I think I mentioned before when I was younger, I used to just like listen to find and download and listen to live shows by bands. And this was a a key live show band that I listened to all the time. Uh, this album that we're talking with today, uh, is definitely considered by, I think a lot of people at large, sort of the apex of this band, and I won't disagree with that, but it is not my favorite album of theirs. We'll talk about that later. But when we first started doing the show, this is definitely a band on my list of like, we got to do this band. 
Uh, so today we are talking about Cursive's The Ugly Orc. Jake, we have a planning spreadsheet, and you're right, Cursive was on the early, early brainstorms. Uh, a guest today kind of opened up the opportunity for you to finally get to a Cursive episode. Uh, today, we're joined by Alyssa Lessig, the bassist of Guardrail. Follow them at Guardrail Sucks on Twitter. Alyssa, thank you so much for coming on. How are you? Hi, guys. Um, it took everything in me not to cheer when you were doing this Cursive intro. I'm so excited. <laughs> So Alyssa, you gave us you gave us a pretty good list of uh, usually like when we hit up a guest and we're like, yeah, give us a couple of albums. The person will send like two or three or like they'll send a bunch, but they're all like the exact same kind of episode. And I really appreciated the versatility in your list. Uh, I was pushing for a Motion City soundtrack. We've already done a Motion City episode and we haven't doubled up on a band yet and gone to like a second album from the same band. I kind of wanted to do that. I lost. Jake is very passionate about <laughs> Cursive and has been wanting to do this since we started the podcast. So oh, Jake. Uh, Jake, thanks you. We're in the same boat, Jake. Man. Excellent. You guys are like my music soulmates because I do really appreciate that versatility in your episodes too it's kind of it's kind of perfect and you know that stems to guardrail as well we're just a bunch of mishmashed stuff <laughs> i was going to ask uh in the guardrail sucks twitter bio uh you guys refer to yourselves as diet punk and i'm just i'm like we've we've joked at times on this podcast about like if you go on um the emo subreddit like they'll argue about all these like narrowly, narrowly defined subgenres of emo. And I am just curious what qualifies as diet punk or is that just a joke? Um, it totally started as just a joke. It was more of a pun. We were like writing a Twitter post and it was like support low cal music, like low calorie. <laughs> and then we did hashtag diet punk. And then it literally just took off from there. But, you know, we're not punk. We're like lighter punk. We're kind of pop punk, but we have some like metal in there. Um, you know, I play cello, so I'll try and get that on our stuff when I can uh, sell yeah. it. That's great. Um, Alyssa, before we dive into the album, uh, I mentioned that you you kind of threw a couple different options at us. And I'd imagine you playing the cello has something to do with this. Uh, why the ugly organ and why cursive for you coming on this podcast? Oh boy, um, this was just a monumental, like discovering Cursive, especially this album with the cello was just like a totally new sound for me. Um, and I think Tim Kasher's like poetic lyrics really resonate deep, like deeply with people, especially like, you know, high school, college age, when you're just like starting to discover these like <laughs> ugly depths of being a human being. So, you know, I, I really latched onto it. This was one of the reasons that I learned cello in the first place. Um, 
I didn't start playing till high school. Um, and I totally wanted to be Greta. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Uh, Jake, what about you, man? Cause I know this was early, early on the, the brainstorming sheet for you too. What is it? You talked about it like very quickly, off the top, but why, why does cursive mean so, so much to you? And I guess, I mean, if you want to talk now about why you lean toward another one of their albums instead of the other organ, but, or we can save that till later. I'm so so interested in what that is. Funny enough. I actually got into cursive through another band that was on Alyssa's list, uh, which is murder by death, who are still one of my favorite bands. I think I was in my last year of high school or my first year of university. I forget which, but I was browsing the murder by death internet forums as you do. And someone had posted to like, what are other bands I might like that are like murder by death. And one comment was just something like they sound nothing like them, but they also have a cello and they were referring to cursive. I had heard the name cursive for years in just being a fan of, you know, this kind of music, but I never really given them a go. So I was like, okay, I'll check that out. And so the first album I checked out, which very much confused me because there's no cello on it was happy hollow, which is my favorite cursive record. But I will also grant that it's probably not like objectively the best one. But, um, the second I heard it, I was just like, Oh, so this is my favorite band. Like they were so, I found both. their like very, we've talked about this before, but like they're like the theater kid, aspects of cursive considering it mm-hmm. more than half their music is concept records i which i love obviously and obviously and the style of music i found just so interesting and it was a it was very similar to the stuff i was listening to but like different enough to intrigue me and then also kind of like what Alyssa was saying i was really drawn in by tim Casher's lyrics and he became sort of like my through university he was sort of my favorite songwriter lyricist like even his solo stuff when Game of Monogamy came out, I listened to that constantly as a sad boy in university. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I just, they're a band that I, it happens every now and then where you just find a band that like immediately you just latch onto for various reasons. And I just took it upon myself to devour all of their music I could. And unfortunately they very rarely tour in Canada. So I've only seen them a couple times and not for a very, very long time. But uh, they just turned, yeah, they just turned into one of those bands for me. That's awesome. I feel like it's very easy to feel connected to them being from, uh, I'm from Chicago, that's in the Midwest. So it all feels mm. very close to home for me. You're not that far, but it's, <laughs> it's cool. You get that feeling in Canada too. Yeah, Chicago's the closest thing to Toronto outside of Toronto. So yeah, it's not like physically closest, like, like in terms of the vibe of the city and and the layout, kind of. But Cool. <sighs> All right. Actually, I have a question. Obviously, if you listen to the lyrics uh, in like four seconds, you realize uh, what the album is about. But I always kind of thought the Ugly Organ was like a great tongue-in-cheek name for your heart also. Uh, anyway, mean, that's a... Uh, I think it's kinda. a great tongue-in-cheek name for like your genitalia. Yes, that also. Knowing some of Casher's writing, I feel like that... Uh... That skews more towards his style. Yeah. And I mean, either one of those things, I guess, depends on the type of person you are. Like if you are dealing through some complicated 
uh, feelings, as a lot of these lyrics do. You know, some people might think the organ that's being ugly in those cases are the heart, and some might think it's something else. Uh, we're going to get into that. We're going to get into cursive and everything that makes them cursive, including the cello and those very poetic lyrics after this. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered ChumbaCasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right, Jake. Uh, I'm going to hand the reins to you from here. This is a very Jake album. So take us through... Kind of uh, the pre-Ugly Organ Cursive and, and get us going into this album. So uh, Cursive was formed out of the wreckage of a few bands, one of which we've sort of talked about before uh, in our Days of Parasitos episode, uh, which is Commander Venus, which Tim Casher was in with Connor Oberst. But Cursive was officially formed in the spring of 1995 after the breakup of a band called Slow Down Virginia. That band was made up of Tim Casher, Matt McGinn, and Steve Peterson. When that band left, they wanted to give music a real shot and as Kasher told Evol in 2003, we decided with Cursive that we would write the best we could, believe in it, and if everyone ended up hating it, well, we would deal with it. They added Clint Schneis, never know how to pronounce his last name, uh, <laughs> who played in a band with Peterson called Smash Mouth, all one word, and not that Smash Mouth. Uh, but he joined as Cursive Dis- drummer. Disappointing. If you had revealed right know, now that I- one of the people from <laughs> Cursive was in Smash Mouth... I would have, well, first of all, I would have needed to re-prepare for this episode, yeah. (laughs) The list of terrible Smash Mouth puns I'd have in my notes instead of what I do have in there. I wish. They released the Disruption EP in 1996, followed by the Sucker and Dry EP in 1997. They would release their debut full-length Such Blinding Stars for Such Starving Eyes in September of 1997 for Crank! Records. Uh, It's not like the best cursive album. It's very like post hardcore Midwest emo, uh, but it's aged pretty well compared to a lot of stuff from 1997 in this genre. In a review for Sputnik Music, the Cats Brothers called the album 11 distortion soaked, emotion ridden songs that come off as a younger, worse version of the band's breakthrough Domestica, which I think is pretty accurate. 
They announced they were breaking up in 1998 because Tim Kasher was getting married and moving to Portland, Oregon, and Peterson also wanted to leave the band to go to law school. They recorded The Storms of Early Summer, Semantics of Song, intending that to be their final record. Uh, it was released in November of 1998. Unlike such blinding stars, I think it's still extremely good and very much stands with the rest of their stuff. Uh, it also received an eight from Pitchfork, which from for a late 90s emo band seems kind of odd. It, it also means it's actually bad now. Yes, that's right. They have to reverse it. Yes, it was an every, eight. Like the Pitchfork rating now is one is 10 minus whatever the Pitchfork rating was then. Yeah, or plus, depending on who you are. This album was released on Saddle Creek Records, which makes sense because they are in Omaha, uh, of which Kasher and many of the members would become entrenched in the Saddle Creek world, which we have talked about in the past, especially regarding Bright Eyes and Rilo Kiley. Uh, it was also Cursive's first attempt at writing a concept album, something they would do many, 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 many times in the future. Uh, the first half of the record was categorized as Man vs. Nature, and the second half was Man vs. Self. In the summer of 1999, Tim Kasher got divorced and returned to Omaha, Nebraska, uh, and would reform Cursive with the same members, except with Ted Stevens of the band Lullaby for the Working Class, joining on guitar and vocals and co-writing songs. Within the year, they had recorded the album Domestica, which if you're listening to this show, you've probably heard about. Uh, it is also a concept album, about the dissolution of a marriage, and in my opinion, it is one of the, underlined the, breakup albums of the early 2000 emo scene. If you did not listen to this album after you got broken up with, you probably weren't into early 2000s emo. Or, Jake, what if you fired it back up in 2020 when going through a breakup? I mean, it works either way. <laughs> yeah, it sure uh, does. I, so can, I can attest to that. It, it holds up in that regard. <laughs> uh, as we were sort of talking about a couple minutes ago, this is, I think, really where you see the beginning of Tim Kasher's songwriting and lyric writing. Uh, most of the songs, his lyrics are way too long for the meter of the songs themselves. Uh, and it's too many words, which is really hard to replicate as someone who tried to replicate it many times in my 20s, uh, which is just speaks to his talent. Uh, and I think a good example of that is in this song, The Game of Who Needs Who the Worst. So 
So Alyssa, you're I think a little younger than Jake and I. Um, were you into cursive as far back as Domestica, or are they a band that like you went back to and kind of had to like retro check out? They were a band I I learned of them in high school. Okay. I was far too young um, when Domestica <laughs> came out to. Uh, well, I'm not I, trying I to. Been. I'm trying not to age Jake and I that badly here. I mean, I was 12. It's not like I was. Okay, there yeah. Either. I was gonna say I must have. <laughs> okay, was... well then I'm not trying. I'm trying not to age myself. <laughs> then. I, I would have been uh, nine years old in 2000. <laughs> Okay, that's not that. <laughs> it's, it's, right, both, but I think both of us probably not ready for a divorce album. No, yeah. not quite getting it yet. Uh, okay, so um, <laughs> now that I've derailed us talking about our divorces at fourteen <laughs> and nine, respectively, uh, Jake, where'd they go uh, from there? So Domestica sort of broke the band in the good term of breaking. Uh, it was extremely well received. It also got an eight from Pitchfork, and that review is a very important review in my life, which I know is a weird thing to say, but as I said, I got into cursive right around my first year of university, which is peak only listening to Pitchfork review time in a person's life, especially if you are a straight white male. Uh, So this album getting a good review from Pitchfork made me think that it was worth listening to, uh, and it was. David Anthony with Vice did a Rank Your Records column with Tim Kasher about Cursor's records. Uh, Tim Kasher actually ranked it fourth, which I thought was surprising, uh, and said, most of what I like and dislike about Domesca is the rawness of it. I really appreciate it, and I listen to records from other bands love when something is raw, but when it's your own stuff, it comes with this idea that maybe it could have sounded a little better, that maybe we could have done more, which I think is fair. In 2001, the band added Greta Cohn on cello and recorded the Burst and Bloom EP, which in my opinion, is the best thing the band's done, but it's too short to consider an album. Uh, and they also released the Eight Teeth to Eat You EP in 2002. The band would tour pretty much constantly between 2001 and 2002, to the point where they ran into exhaustion, which culminated in Tim Kasher suffering a collapsed lung, which sounds horrible Yikes. if you're singing every day. They would return home from tour to Omaha and began writing what would become the Ugly Organ. And that brings Jake, us to- I have a question for you, or maybe Alyssa knows. Um, the adding of Greta as a cellist, um, was that, like, what was the, what was the thinking there? Because that's like a pretty, it's a pretty out of the box move to throw some cello in. So I guess, uh, Alyssa, you mentioned that you try to work some cello into what you guys are doing with guardrail. Because that's not a standard instrument in this genre, what's the process like for working that unique a sound into what uh what a band is doing whether that's you guys or whether that's you know going back and listening to how cursive changed when when she was added yeah well guardrail being more pop punk um the cello is really only in our acoustic stuff right but i think when you listen to a lot of cursive and a lot of murder by death you kind of start to hear the the potential of the cello as a really powerful force and songwriting um like it can really it can really lead parts it can really add add a total new layer of emotion so you start to like think of the cello not as an accent instrument but as a like lead instrument and that makes all the difference yeah i agree with that Uh, i think that kind of hits on the head why i think cursive and murder by death work better because the cello can sort of do exactly that rather than the violin, which I feel like is more of an accompany instrument. 
and especially with the range of the cello, you can get those really low bellowing notes and you can, you know, add them together and turn them into chords. And they're just like so big. And you can also do the like really high up stuff for that like delicate sound. It's just an amazing instrument. I, I love it. Well, it certainly worked for cursive. Uh, they start picking up some steam from here. Jake, it's ugly organ time for, for this band. So to answer your question about why the cello, uh, it sounds like the band just wanted one. Dan Ozzy did a big, ugly organ oral history for Vice in 2014 uh, for the 11th anniversary of which they released an issue reissue, uh, deluxe edition then. Uh, Greta Cohn said that I was in college and playing with a couple of bands here and there. We became the default opening act. I graduated and moved back to New York. Then a year later, my parents called me and said, there was a message on our answering machine from this cowboy, and we really don't know what it's about. It was Ted Stevens calling me just to say, we met you and remembered you, and we're looking for a cello player. Are you interested? And that is literally how she joined the band. Easy enough. Um, Let's move to Omaha. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yep. In that Rank Your Records interview with Dave Anthony, Tim Casher said that the ugly organ was another exciting time because I think for it's the first time looking back at the catalog, it's really us getting our footing and it's the record where it sounds the most uniquely like us. However, because of that, the band did not expect it to be a success at all. Uh, Casher told Dan Ozzy in that oral history in 2014, it just seemed really queer and perverse to me. And I thought it was me internalizing in such an obnoxious way that it wouldn't translate and it made me feel a little selfish. But it all ended up being this big, weird, wild surprise, which is kind of exciting, but also leaves me perplexed. When they were writing the album, apparently they wrote a lot of it on the road, uh, which they road tested on those exhausting 2001-2002 tours. Matt McGinn told Dan Ozzy, we played some of the big ugly organ song like Gentleman Caller, Art is Hard, Red Handed Sleight of Hand on the Plea for Peace tour, and I feel like the reaction was really good. It's kind of a road testing you want out of a song. The crowds are pretty open-minded. Uh, and in regarding the addition of Greta Cohn, Matt McGinn said, she did the Burst and Bloom EP, but that was different because those songs were mostly written before she joined the band. So the cello was added as a layer after the fact, rather than written together the way the ugly organ was written with her as a participant. And Cohn would add, I was working a job I wasn't excited about and it seemed like an adventure. So I flew out there with a suitcase, a cello case and my cat. I'm so glad I did. I learned a lot about myself. I got to go on tour and travel the world and be part of this thing as it grew. I feel like I was in Omaha for a pivotal point of Saddle Creek's history. I took a leap. At the time, I said to myself, maybe I'll go out there for a year or two and see what happens, then move back home. And I ended up staying there four years. Which, fair enough. To our earlier points about what the cello adds to any song, but especially cursive song, I think that this song from Ugly Organ highlights it the best, in my opinion, just my opinion. Uh, so this is a song called Butcher the Song. Why should I play the fall guy? 
Not exactly uh, Saddle Creek's normal sound at that time, Jake. <laughs> no, and because of that, the expectations for the record were pretty, pretty low. Rob Nansel of Saddle Creek told Dan Ozzy that I don't actually remember hearing it for the first time. That period was so crazy for us. The Faint had done Dance Macabre, and that was really something resonating on an international level. Then Bright Eyes had lifted, and each time any of those guys made another record, everyone was trying to put one up each other. Or, as Matt McGinn put it, I was married at the time and we were in the living room listening to the record for the first time. The whole record played through and Staying Alive had just finished, which is the final song on the record. I remember saying to my wife, I don't think anyone's going to like this record except for that last song. (laughs) And I remember having a similar conversation with Tim. Like, this is a really weird, fucked up record. We were super excited about it, but it was a bit different. We thought people would think we were spazzes and it was just too weird. So this is where I want to turn the discussion to the both of you. Whereas thinking about other albums in the Saddle Creek world at this time, any Bright Eyes or Rilo Kylie or The Faint or any of those sort of approaching mainstream indie records, how the hell did this get made? (laughs) Like, how does it fit in with that sort of world? Man, that's such a good question. This album is, it is, it's it's interesting because it's like not such a tight concept album. And I feel concept albums were like pretty, they were pretty in at this time. You know, I guess, you know, what resonates is it's, you know, when I listen to it, it's almost like, um, like a film soundtrack or like a play soundtrack that has like the vocals on top of it. Like, I don't know, it really draws you in from that standpoint. Um, it's, it's infectious. I, you know, it, and it doesn't really compare to any of that stuff. What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I think, I mean, in terms of Saddle Creek, like it it does seem like it would be up Connor's alley at least. And maybe that's how, how it gets that momentum and gets put together. But yeah, I, I mean, I like what Alyssa's saying and where it like, it kind of over the course of the album, it builds this environment that like, it's not a hard concept album but like it's very i guess self-contained is the term where like stuff that's happening later in the record especially when you get to staying alive has been laid out over the earlier parts of the record and obviously they do that with like the constant refresh back to the ugly organ but it's uh yeah i don't know maybe maybe that's it that it's just this like 
And I, I mean, from a like commercial standpoint, it's like until you, if you take out staying alive, like it's a pretty snappy record. It moves quick and it, it's a pretty good energy to it. But I think, yeah, maybe it's, it's genuinely catchy as hell. Like, yeah, you, mm-hmm. you want to dance to it. You want to, you want to scream to it. You want, you want to be part <laughs> of it. Yeah. And I'm glad you guys sort of brought up, or Alyssa, you brought up the idea of it like being a play in the vinyl liner notes of the record. It actually has stage directions in the middle of all the lyrics for different songs, which I find kind of interesting because they tried to do this a little later uh, with I Am Gemini, which I don't think it really worked of making it a like very obvious play concept record. Um, But this kind of hides it. But like in the liner notes before, at the very beginning, right before the start of Red Handed Sleight of Hand, the stage direction says, enter organist. He moves center stage in grotesque costume. He gestures towards an imaginary audience. It also assigns characters uh, in Bloody Murderer. After the first verse, it says, enter ghost singing. But there's, but to keep the loose concept thing going, there's never any story details assigned to any of it. It's just these weird random stage directions in the middle of songs, which I don't know if that's why it resonated, but I think it's interesting that it did because it is way less straightforward than a lot of their other work. And while Domestica obviously was a big deal, it wasn't as big a deal as this, which always surprises me. And I do think that, you know, all the things that people loved about Domestica and just the, the way that Tim Kasher really goes in on the like politics of like a failing relationship they come through in this album it's just in a slightly different light mm-hmm. i would agree with that like entirely it's it's like a, a different flavor of exploration of um you know being kind of a pained misogynistic like depressed figure <laughs> trying to navigate relationships but really just in the end being like a shell of a human and needing to change. Yeah. And I think that's interesting in the way it's also reflected in the sound, the change in sound almost, even though some of it is a little similar. Um, Kasher told uh, Dave Anthony in the Rank Your Records article, uh, after doing Domestica, which was this muscular post-hardcore thing, we went into this more beautifully effeminate record, even though it's still very weird and loud. It just has a lot of that expression that when I was younger, I was scared to express. As we're talking through this, I'll suggest that maybe the success of Domestica gave me the courage to be weird and just to get something out like that. But then we did the record and I was terrified that it was too weird and I'd shown too much of myself and I thought everyone was going to hate me for it. And the sort of weirdness of it was commented by Jeff Rickley, the lead singer of the band Thursday, uh, who told Dan Ozzy that they had a few more songs that they were like, well, these are kind of weird. They might not end up on the album. One of them was Driftwood. And that one, when they told me it might not make the album, I thought they were crazy because that was a big highlight. That's my favorite song on this album. Well, that works great because this is a clip from Driftwood. Yes. So he would soak and drink and mope and cross his arms and hope to die. And then a fair 
Mary came one night to bring the sorry boy to life. She pulled some strings, spun him about. That boy sprang up and began to shout. My arms, my legs, my heart, my face—they all belong. And she would cry. Amongst the whales and the waves, and screamed, "Liar, liar!" and his blood and body floated away. He just drifted away, and now I wonder how I was made. Now I wonder how I was made. My arms, my legs, my heart, my face, my name is. Imagine a world where that wasn't on the album. Yeah, I'm, Alyssa mentioned earlier that this album just kind of makes you want to dance, and like that's the perfect uh... right, like dance, but not in necessarily a happy way, just in a in a human way. It's very weird. This song yeah. it really yeah. gives me all kinds of feels in a very particular kind of way. I've never had this thought till literally right now, so forgive me if it's a dumb thought. But as we're sort of talking about this and think about the, the stage direction and even the way that song sounds, obviously this was not cursive style at all. So like, like they specifically wouldn't be, but like the record kind of feels like if it had come out three years later, like they would have been in like the panic at the disco costume getup, And I feel like it would have just like exploded had it done that. I don't know. Maybe that's me reading too much into it and ascribing it to like the hot topic crowd. Right. Like, like somewhere between Panic at the Disco and like Neutral Milk Hotel, the Decemberists. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So in other words, extreme, extremely Jake's shit is what you're <laughs> describing here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, basically. Um, they made an album for me. And I love, especially like in this song and some of the other songs on this album, the way that Tim can write in dialogue, like he works a lot of dialogue into the lyrics of songs. Um, and, you know, mm-hmm. like I know he's kind of more, uh, more like, a, I, could, like, I think he's more like a fiction writer than like a pure lyricist. Mm-hmm. And so that's really enjoyable to like read the lyrics and see where their quotation marks are. And you start to like think of characters. <laughs> and so it's almost like, you know, um, I think one of you mentioned earlier in the episode this is kind of like, a, I think you use the word schizophrenic, but it's like, it's just all over the place. So even within songs, he'll be like doing different characters. Jake, um, just to build, because you said Panic at the Disco. Um, I So when Panic at the Disco had A Fever You Can't Sweat Out come out, I saw them at Molson Amphitheater here in Toronto. And like the... I think part of it was that they only had one album to play at that point, but they basically 
magnified that aesthetic that they had. And it was basically like a vaudeville show as they uh, performed that album. And like you mentioning the stage directions in the liner notes now and opening up this part of the discussion, like I absolutely want to see, like I would love to go back and they're touring this album and like these stage directions and his vision for like the dialogue and the characters are a part of the show as they play this album. I think that'd be really cool. I wonder if anybody has ever tried to do that. That's always been my thought when I was in university as like an English major, I was like, I'm going to write the ugly organ play, but I obviously never did. Yeah. I mean, Hey, maybe you can, you can launch that around the same time. I do my blink 182 rock opera. (laughs) If only. Uh, But I think, but to your point with the live thing, I think it's interesting too, that, uh, as I obviously I never saw them at this time, but uh, I, as I said, I used to listen to a lot of bootlegs of their shows and they like throw even to this day, anything that's conceptual about their music, they completely throw out the window when they play live and they just turn into a very loud rock show, which I've always found interesting. They never like, like we talked about in our Black Parade episode, how like when they did toward the Black Parade, they play it front to back and Gerard Way came out on a fucking hospital gurney and like they did the whole thing. And Cursive were just like, no, here's our songs out of order that have nothing to do with anything. I think um, just from like re- what I know about Tim Kasher, I think he's very cognizant about staying away from anything that is like trite or hokey or uh, like getting pigeonholed into like Mm. into being something like I think that's the reason that they took cello off their preceding albums after the ugly organ because he just was like we don't want to be the cello band so we're not going to have cello which like I respect Hmm. that in a way like I wish they had kept in I know they have cello now again which is great but I kind of respect that like we don't want to do that and all their albums are very different too which I find Mm -hmm. probably in his like impatient brain makes sense to your point earlier about his sort of direct writing and writing dialogue and songs and all that. I think this album also has one of the weirdest pseudo hit songs of the early two thousands emo. Like I have no idea how this song got decent airplay on MTV, but it did. That song is art is hard, which is very direct and is basically continues the song Burst and Bloom from the Burst and Bloom EP's way of calling themselves out, but also the music industry. I, I just, I will never understand how this was successful.
Jeff Rickley told Dan Ozzy about this song. We were on the Plea for Peace tour with them. They had finished making it, but it hadn't come out yet. They came on our bus and played us the record, and we were like, whoa. I remember they played the very piecemeal for us. They played Art is Hard right away, and we were like, holy shit, that's the new cursive anthem right there. You call out all this stuff, and you make fun of yourself right in the middle. This is amazing. This is so cursive of you, which I hate the quote, but I do think it's true. I mean, it, it is a <laughs> objectively hilarious song. Yes, and it's just like to you, to your like, he's a fiction writer, like his ability to make it catchy, but also these like very long prosaic dialogue things. I I don't think he gets enough credit, and the more I'm talking myself into being mad about it as we do this. I remember um, the like thirty one flavors reference in that song. Really, just like it just like tickled me in a way where I was like, damn, this is hilarious but also such good writing it's like tired of entertaining some double dip meaning a soft serve analogy um drunken drunken angry slur is in 31 flavors i'm like yes (laughs) i've never made the connection before he's he goes to the 31 flavors well a lot he does it on his solo record too but that's it's it's a good like he's very good at such a, a good suburban uh reference Mm. Like it's not good. Yeah, we don't have it. We don't have thirty-one flavors here, do we, Jake? Yeah, I've just Baskin one. Robbins. Yeah, it's just Isn't Baskin it? Robbins. Oh, it's the same it's the thing. Same thing. Wow, I can't believe you didn't know oh. that. <laughs> yeah, it's the same thing. I yeah, didn't. They have I thought it was, flavors. I thought it was really weird that they marketed it the same, and like I thought maybe I was just like <laughs> like maybe Baskin Robbins had like five more flavors or five less or something. <laughs> It's, isn't it weird to anyone else that they go by different names? No, I think 31 Flavors is more of their tagline. Yeah, it's like their advertising. Oh. It's their thing. Well, yeah, I get that. But like you guys are referring to it like the place is called 31 Flavors. I, I feel like an idiot now. but <laughs> It's like a nickname. It's like calling McDonald's the Golden Arches. Nobody does that, actually. People do that somewhere, maybe. I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, anyway, I feel stupid uh, now. We need to take a break. We're going to talk about how the ugly organ was received after this. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right, we're back. Uh, while while we were off, Jake just told me he really likes it when I'm wrong about stuff. So uh, that's I. But I said it because you're never wrong. It's yeah, a yeah, yeah. Salt. Yeah, we had a during the break. We just had a, a poke fun at Blake session. It was nice. It's, uh, you know, <laughs> anyway, this is gonna drive me to get Baskin Robbins after this. Um, I'll be so sad that I'll need ice cream to cheer up. Count the flavors. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. I have a feeling it's not 31. Uh, like, you'd add a flavor at some point, right? All right, I'm 
I'm looking it up. Jake, you're supposed to be leading the discussion. I'll look it up while you do while you talk about actual <laughs> fine the actual album we're doing. Fine, fine. I'll talk about the album I like. So, despite the band's reservations about how the album we received, it ended up being extremely successful, especially for a weird emo album that was on Saddle Creek. Uh, it got a four out of five rating from Rolling Stone and a cover story in the New York Times Arts and Leisure section. It also sold over 171,000 copies, which, again, for a weird emo album on Saddle Creek, is a lot. It's one of the most popular releases in the entire Saddle Creek catalog, which is impressive considering what else is in there. Jeff Rickley commented on exactly this and said so death cab for cutie is just like perfect urban outfitters hip it's just cool enough to be in with that crowd and just not edgy enough to alienate too many people and connor despite his the crazy shit he does in music is still a handsome guy with a guitar talking about his feelings and that's marketable too cursive didn't really have a quick one line that would make you say done sold they were really selling the music on the strength of the ideas and that's never easy it's always a miracle when a record as crazy as the Ugly Organ sells 170,000 copies. I mean, today, if they were selling that, they'd be the biggest fucking band in the world. Matt McGinn commented further, saying, We always tried to stay positive, but it went way past what we'd hoped. We really wanted our peers to like it, the bands we had developed with. It was the first time when we got larger press and the first time we'd hired a publicist and stuff like that. We were exposed to things we hadn't been in the past. We were all Midwestern Catholic high school boys. None of our parents were musicians. They were never openly negative about it, but they were definitely like, what are you doing? This isn't a career. Then getting that New York Times cover, I remember my dad saying something like, well, I don't know. You'll never see me in the New York Times. It was nice to have our family think that we weren't just total goofballs. Being a musician in Omaha is not a remotely normal career choice. Which, I think that's nice. It's always nice when sort of the underdog success story is actually a success. Mm-hmm. Yeah, pays off. Are you guys ready for the answer to the ice cream question? I was going to say, are you, mm-hmm. so, are you still looking at No, I found it almost immediately. Come on. Hit us with <laughs> it. Uh, all right. So first of all, a little backstory here that, um, you know, cursive came from the graves of multiple other bands. Uh, so did Baskin Robbins. It was a merger between Burt's Ice Cream Shop and Snowbird Ice Cream. What year so What year was this? This was in 1953. That checks. That checks out. Brothers in law had competing ice cream companies and they merged them together. Wow. Uh, yeah. I want I want the movie of the week about the formation of Baskin Robbins now. So originally between the two, there were 31 flavors. There are now 22 flavors listed as like the main flavors. And then there are seasonal and regional and healthy choice flavors that I guess are up to each location to pick which ones they want on top of like the base 22. Not as fun an answer as I expected. Okay. So not 30, not, so not 31. 31. Well, I mean, I... I there might be 31 at each shop. Like maybe they're only allowed to have 31, <laughs> but it can be a different 31 store to store, I guess. Got it. Oh, okay. I get it. Um, yeah. Anyway. Uh, so the ugly organ reception. Uh, it <laughs> yeah, got only, sorry. That's like the second or third last time I'll derail us. <laughs> it won't be too many more. I <laughs> uh, got a three and a half from all music, a five out of five from alternative press, four out of five from blender, a minus from consequence of sound, a seven out of 10 from pitchfork and the four out of five from rolling stone. The band toured the album like crazy. They played 126 shows in 2003. After the 2003 tour, Greta Cohn left the band 
and moved back to New York, and the band went on hiatus once again, allowing Tim Kasher to make another landmark emo record with his band The Good Life, so it's a very prolific time for him. However, the impact of The Ugly Organ lives on. The band released an 11th year anniversary edition in 2014 with eight B-side bonus tracks, including two that I want to talk about because Tim Kasher says now that they should have been on the album. They were both on a split with a band called Eastern Youth, and Tim Kasher said to Dan Ozzy, I'd probably offer that the second two songs in that split were just additional songs on a split, because as a band, you don't want to throw all your best stuff on a split. You're trying to write a good record, and you don't want to give it all away. But we wanted to make sure that the split was good, so we gave away excerpts from various notes strewn around the bedroom of April Connolly, February 24th, 1997. That's the name of one song. And Am I Not Yours? That's the name of the other song. He said, I think those songs certainly would have been on the album had they come later in the writing process, or had that split CD never surfaced. The only reason I want to talk about these songs is because both of these were two of my favorite songs in university when I was super, super into cursive, and also because Excerpts from Various Notes is one of the best Greta songs in cursive's discography, uh, and so this is a clip from Excerpts from Various Notes strewn around the bedroom of April Connolly, February 24th, 1997. <laughs> guys when we record these uh, i give our producer dylan who does such great work for us and is greatly appreciated like a, a nod or a verbal cue that uh, we're good for uh, that song clip and, and that sample i did not give him the cue this time because i wanted to keep listening to it um, so dylan dylan turning heel on us here and, and taking away our cello our uh, moody cello intro unbelievable dylan <laughs> I do think, though, that song is sort of 
the culmination of everything we've talked about with this record. Like it has a lead cello line. It's entirely written in dialogue and way too many words and it's loud and it's weird to me. That's like the perfect 2003, four era cursive song. I think you're right about that. Thank you. Uh, so just to finish up cursive's little history, uh, the band obviously did not stay on hiatus. Uh, they reunited in 2006 to release happy hollow. They released mama. I'm swollen in 2009, which is what Tim Kasher picked as his number one cursive album in that rank your records column. They released. I am Gemini in 2012 vitriola in 2018 and get fixed the following year in 2019 on both vitriola and get fixed. They also have returned the cello to their sound, although it's not Greta Cohn, but it's crazy how it's the two best records they've made in my opinion, in a really long time. And it has cello again. Absolutely. So that's fun. Megan CB would be the cellist on those. Oh, cool. I didn't know her name, but that's, thank you for doing my work for me. Yeah. Her and I have a lot in common. <laughs> how's, how's so? Well, we're like the same age, uh, band, band nerds and band and choir nerds in high school. And then, um, we're music education majors in college doing cello. Oh, cool. I know. Right. I was like, man, that's awesome. Rooting for this girl. A band like this, and, and obviously, especially with with where you ended up going with music, Alyssa, you know, we talked a little bit early on about why you wanted to do this album. Um, has going through this, like, do you see even more of kind of the influence that it had on you or like either as a musician or how your tastes developed from there? Well, I think absolutely. Um, yeah, this is I mean, this is, uh, you know, deeply ingrained in like my heart fibers. So it'll it'll. Um, <laughs> It'll it'll remain extremely important and influential, and I can't wait to see what Cursive does next. What about for you, Jake? Because I know that you know this this came especially at a period for you where your tastes were kind of like a like a pretty formative transition period for your tastes from what you've said on earlier episodes. Um, so what what kind of role did Cursive play in that for you? I mean, I was very much influenced by this band both in like musical taste and also like maybe not in the best ways in like my mood and opinions being like a 20 year old like sad boy listening to cursive is maybe not the best thing to do in a lot of ways but Jake, if just it makes like, you feel better you were going to end up where you ended up no matter what you were listening that's true to. that's true but i feel like they were just such they were such a comfort blanket band for me. And like, I can't, they're one of those bands that I know everyone has. Where like, I can't listen to any of their material really pre like Vitriola, which came out two years ago uh, and not be very much like time and placed mm-hmm. with it. Like they're just every cursive song I can ascribe to like walking around this part of Montreal or Toronto when I was in my early twenties doing this. And because I just listened to them so, so much. And it's, it's odd that I listen to them less now. Cause I, they're not a band. Like we've talked about some bands where like, I like band this band less than I used to, where I don't like cursive any less than I used to, but I don't go back to them as often as I probably should, which I find surprising. And I wouldn't have thought many years ago, but yeah, they're just, one of those bands for me that is just so 
big for me to the point where I still have a t-shirt of theirs that I bought, I think on the I am Gemini tour, which is now eight years ago, which (laughs) it's just, they're just one of those bands. I don't know. It's very interesting that you say it puts you in a place. Um, I mean, I've always thought that the, like the ugly organ is one of these albums that, and one of the only ones that I think has like a smell. You can like, you can like smell what the setting is and like what these types of like life situations, like what you can smell the room, like the vibe of the room Mm -hmm. uh, that these songs are written about. It's, it's great. Yeah. And I think that sort of speaks to like the specificity of the writing in it as well. It's just like smells like sex and alcohol and indifference. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. That's exactly it. A perfect description. Yeah. It smells like a walk of shame is basically what we're getting at. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. That's yeah. Um, But like a walk of shame that you can't stop thinking about. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, in the good way or the bad way? (laughs) I don't know. In an introspective way, in a poetic way. (laughs) All right. We're at the part in the uh, podcast where we got to pick a couple songs from the album. And Alyssa, what we do at the end of every episode is we pick one song from the album we discussed to go on our Columbia House Party mixtape. Generally, we kind of let the guests guide that unless Jake feels very strongly uh, against it. Um, in this case, I, I want to give you guys both a-, a chance. We played a couple clips, but do you have a, a top three or so off of this album? Oh, uh, boy, do I. <laughs> let's hear it. <laughs> Should I say all three? Yeah, let's go. All right. Um, Driftwood, A Fairy Tale, number one. Number two, Gentleman Caller. Um, number three, butcher the song. Well, Jake, you hit two out of three with the ones you played. So I did. It's that's actually very sim- very similar to my top three on this record. Actually, different order, but uh, similar, same songs. I mine are uh, Driftwood as well. Also, Gentleman Caller, and I have Sierra on mine as well. Oh, nice. Ooh, yeah. Sierra would definitely round out my top three as well. Uh, but I'm I'm happy with either with either of the. Two we both mentioned. Well, what I was going to suggest, yeah, is if if Driftwood, a fairy tale, is both of your favorite song off the album, I feel like this is pretty straightforward, right? Great, yeah, yes, I think Let's so. Do it. All right, so Driftwood, a fairy tale, it is. Uh, Jake, did you have any more stuff or any more questions for Alyssa before we uh, let her go? No, I think that's about it. It was very cool to talk about this album with someone who has like taken it and been influenced by it musically and not just uh lifely which i know isn't a word but uh (laughs) yeah it is this was really fun yeah i like all right yeah it's so crazy like bands like this where you can barely like put into words how and why they're so meaningful Mm -hmm. you're just like i i don't know i'm glad we feel the same (laughs) it's it's great we'll we'll get on a a talking medium to talk about how we can't put into words how good an album yeah, is. Yeah, perfect for an feel. audio. <laughs> right? Podcast. Like, let's I just mean, uh... look. It's music. It, the, the thing is, is that anyone who's listening to this episode and who knows uh, Cursive and loves Cursive is going to know exactly what you guys mean and feel the same way. And then anyone who doesn't, I would assume that that type of connection that's indescribable to an album is going to drive people to check that album out so i feel like this is a this is a win-win yeah definitely Alyssa, 
thank you so much for coming on. And guys, make sure you check out Guardrail. Follow them along at Guardrail Sucks. Uh, Alyssa, you don't have your, do you have your own account that people can follow you along on? I couldn't find it, if so. On which platform? Either or. I'm on Instagram. The handle is just Alyssa Lessig. Okay, perfect. Um, oh yeah, you have some very, very nice photos. I like them. Thank you. Uh, Alyssa, thank you so much for this. This was great. Thank you guys. Yeah, this was super fun. I had a great time. Glad to hang out. You listen to Cursive.